It was 1999, September the 26th. I was in um, the Foothills Hospital in Calgary, laying at the deathbed of my father. My dad was 83 years old, and it was clear that his life was coming to an end, and our family was holding a vigil. And it was my turn to lie on the floor beside my dad uh, overnight. And we didn't expect him to die that particular night. But the nurse wakened me in the morning, and she said, um, I didn't know whether and when to wake you, but your, your father passed about an hour and a half ago. I'm so sorry. And I said to her, well, I've seen him struggling, and just to know that he's at peace is actually kind of good news. Because, you see, we are Christians, and uh, I have confidence in where my father is. And the nurse uh, looked at me and got very bright-eyed, and she said, I understand, sir. And may I remind you, it's Sunday morning. And as soon as she said that, I remembered, of course, that Sunday is Resurrection Day. And um, the whole sting of death and the horror of death, which some people just fight endlessly to prolong and to put off. When it comes for the Christian, it's a source uh, of sadness, yes, because we will be without a friend, dear one, for a while. But we know that they're in a far better place. St. Paul reminds us that to be absent from the Lord, or to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And although Christians have different understandings about uh, the state of the, um, the, uh, the faithful dead, I firmly believe, um, especially in light of that Pauline passage, that um, the minute life passes from us, we go and we are in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. So, being resurrection is uh, a paradigm changer. We all know what a paradigm change is. It's when uh, a whole worldview or a way of thinking all of a sudden gets turned on its head. And dear friends, Easter is the great paradigm changer. Um, death no longer has victory. Um, Christ himself is the first, um, the first fruits among the dead to be part of a rebooted creation. And we, um, by believing in Jesus, have already participated in his resurrection. And uh, if we were to have time to do a little survey this morning, I'm sure there are lots of things that each of us could attest to that have died and gone. And many of us are experiencing new birth and new creaturehood in different ways. You probably heard the story or the, the expression, rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. That was said by Mark Twain. And in 1879, Mark Twain was reading a, a newspaper and he read his own obituary. And uh, he read the obituary and it was quite nice and flattering, but there was, there, was, there was a mistake. So he went, so it is told, this might be apocryphal, but the story goes that he went to the newspaper, uh, which was actually quite often writing people's obituaries when uh, prematurely. And uh, Mark Twain said, uh, I'd like to complain, I'm not dead. And the newspaper editor said, sir, what's done is done. Uh, according to our newspaper, you're dead. There's nothing I can do. But I'll tell you what, we can announce your birth tomorrow if you like. It's a whole chance for a new start. And so Mark Twain agreed. Well, it's a little bit like that for us, isn't it? Only Jesus really did die. It wasn't fake. 
there's no question that he was uh, dead as dead can be. But on Sunday morning, there was new birth, and that new birth has come for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So what I want to do this morning, or this afternoon, it's easy to think of church always as Sunday morning, but this is the afternoon, is what would it have been like to preach an Easter sermon before the New Testament? Do you remember Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 47 said this, and I wondered if you've ever asked yourself as you read that, I would love to see those passages. Jesus opened their mind to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Um, I have been a student of the Bible for a long time and decided as a profession to be a, a professional student of the Bible. And this is one of the passages that got me going. I thought, I can't think of a psalm or a passage in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah suffering and dying and rising from the dead on the third day. And I would love to have been there with the Emmaus crowd listening to Jesus explicate those psalms. So friends, this may appear to be a bit of an academic exercise, and I hope it's not, at least in its own, for its own sake, but I want us to look this morning, uh, this afternoon, at those Old Testament passages that pertain to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, uh, you might be saying, what is the problem, Glenn? Uh, Keith Ganser, uh, less than a year ago, uh, explicated Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of us all was played upon him. But that, my friends, is a different character in the Old Testament than the Messiah. The Messiah was a son of David who was a king. The suffering servant is a prophetic figure who... Uh, has a title of his own. And so far as anyone knows, those two figures were not equated prior to the time of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the suffering servant, uh, was the suffering servant. But it's interesting to note that when you look at the Gospels, the suffering servant material was there waiting to be exploited, waiting to be interpreted in the light of Jesus' death. But instead, the Gospel writers went to the Psalms and Jesus said that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer and die and rise on the third day. So far as anyone knows, uh, there was no one prior to Jesus living at the time of Jesus or before who ever suggested that it was the destiny of the Messiah to suffer and die. That was just a contradiction in terms. We saw this last week when Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was intimating his humility on a donkey, but they were expecting a conquering king, someone to come and quash the Romans and to set Jerusalem and Israel politically free. And yet Jesus understood his destiny to involve death. So there's a problem here. And the problem originates from the fact that the Messiah and the suffering servant of Israel, though Jesus fulfilled them both, and many other images of the Old Testament, he was a comprehensive fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, they were separate. And as I've said, no one before the time of Christ taught that the Messiah would suffer and die 
for those of you who might be taking a, a have taken a course in religious studies, you might have even found a New Testament professor who went so far as uh, Don Jewell and Niels Dahl, the great Yale professor, to say that um, the disciples didn't think that the Messiah would suffer until after Jesus's resurrection. And then they kind of read it back into the Bible after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Well, friends, I think nothing could be further from the truth. And this afternoon, we're going to look at passages that pertain to the Messiah and sharpen our wits on looking for allusions to the resurrection and seeing in the Psalms more than I hope we have seen before. We have forgotten how to see Christ in the Psalms. So as we embark on looking at the Apostles' key resurrection and exaltation text this afternoon, I want to take us back to the background. And the background to that is a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's a promise that God made to David, that his posterity would rule over Israel in perpetuity. We read in 2 Sam 7, 4, jumping to 11, but the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. Moreover, the Lord declares to, to you that the Lord will make you a house. House is a uh, uh, sort of a, 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 um, a code word also for dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Uh, Solomon literally building a house in the one instance but I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Think of God declaring Jesus to be his son at the baptism. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. That of course is not an allusion to Jesus because Jesus never committed iniquity. It's meant to explain why there were some kings who were removed in the line of David from ruling. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Think of this, friends. This is a promise that was made, uh, what? 2700 years ago somewhere around there even longer actually um, more like 3000 years ago what is the likelihood that anyone living 3000 years later could attest to the truth of this there's no other kingdom that i can think of in china or egypt or anywhere else where a prophecy that a king would still be on the throne remains true and of course for christians it does remain true and is true because jesus christ the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Son of David, continues to reign at the right hand of the Father. He was the promised Messiah. Another point by way of background is 2 Samuel 23, 1-2, and this takes us closer to understanding how we can see Jesus legitimately in the Psalms. Let me just remind you of the point uh, of, of 2 Sam 7. I have it in italics. God promised King David an eternal dynasty. In other words, he promised that an heir of David would be king over God's people forever. Jesus ultimately fulfills this prophecy as the kingly Messiah, son of David, son of God. 2 Samuel 23, 1-2 is unique before, because in it, David claims to be a prophet. We read in 2 Sam 23, now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. 
That word oracle is a technical term that is only used of a prophet. Only a prophet gives oracles. So here we learn that David is a prophet, not just a king. And David continues and he goes on and is described as the anointed of the son of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he continues, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The point, friends, is that King David, as a writer of many psalms, was also a prophet. And here we find already in the Bible, in 2 Samuel itself, a hint that the hymns and prayers of David that were to be collected in the psalms were not only hymns and prayers, though they were, but they were also prophetic. At this point, uh, well, I'm, not, I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. At this point, I think it's fair to ask, well then, Glenn, what you're saying is that the Psalms are prophecies. Uh, well, in what sense are they prophecies? I mean, I had understood them to be hymns, prayers, and some people actually thought that something like Psalm 22 was a prophecy that was given to David where he saw the crucifixion and only the crucifixion. It was like uh, jumping hundreds of years ahead of time and seeing only that. Well, it doesn't take very much thought to realize that that is, uh, is probably not the best solution. And my favorite solution to the problem is one by an Anglican divine in the 19th century who was not particularly novel, but he hit the nail on the head when he said, the best way to understand the Psalms as prophecy is not a standalone predictive prophecy. Psalm 22 is not this kind of a video image of the crucifixion, although it does prophesy the crucifixion but as a fade-in, fade-out, typological prophecy. The word typology there is important. Um, I suspect you probably heard of a typology. A typology is sort of um, an image that reminds you of something else, and it was an image that was designed to remind you of something else. And so Peroni is calling the Psalms typologically prophetic. There are places where, um, as in a... focus and that at other times it pops out of focus and it zooms in and zooms out and that does not reflect some kind of a inaccuracy on the part of the holy spirit the holy spirit is doing uh, a favor to the original hearers because uh it meant something for them before the crucifixion and the holy spirit is also alluding to the crucifixion at the same time so it's a win-win prophecy it speaks to us as individuals it speaks throughout time but in another sense it refers to the resurrection and the crucifixion. So what I wanted to suggest we do is to take a look at some of the Psalms that relate to Jesus. And I want to start with a couple of the easier ones. And one you know from Acts chapter two, verses 25 to 28. The setting is Pentecost. And Peter at Pentecost is explaining the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you remember that Peter explaining it under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, which has freshly fallen upon him, he quotes Joel. And then he quotes Psalm 16. And he quotes the passage where David says, in the Greek text at least, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David continues in his poem, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, Peter goes on to explain, dear friends, we know that David died. David wrote this. So he was a prophet who was speaking of another one who was to come, someone else in the royal line of David who would not remain in Sheol and who would not see corruption. And so um, um, Peter understood uh, properly that the Psalms were understood as prophecy. Friends, this is not a Christian retrojection back into the Old Testament. This is the way in which Jews at the time were understanding the Psalms as well. In fact, the Psalms were put together and edited by someone who I think had a vision of the Messiah that was very much like Jesus. And so on our journey this afternoon, we're actually going to get to the point where we see the brilliance of Jesus, the student of the Old Testament, understanding scripture in ways that scripture wanted to be understood, but in ways that no one prior to him had so understood them. That takes us nicely to Psalm 110. Jesus was a, uh, this was a favorite of Jesus, and he, he stumped the religious leaders. You remember after they tried to trick him, at one point in the Gospels, he says, um, tell me, who is the Messiah? Is he the son of David? And they said, yes, and Jesus' implication, and nothing more. Well, son of David, Messiah is pretty good. And then Jesus said, well, if, if he's nothing more, then why did David say in Psalm 110, the Lord decreed concerning my Lord? And then Jesus said, who then was David's Lord? Because whoever David's Lord was, it was said of him. God said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies, and so on. So the logic, if you haven't noticed it before, is a kind of a, a whodunit. Um, you've got the writer, David. You've got the speaker, God. And God, David is writing God's words. And as David writes God's words, God says to him, the Lord decreed, or David says, the Lord decreed concerning my Lord. And so the underlined word, my Lord, cannot refer to David. Now, from a hard-nosed historical critical standpoint, there's a solution to this, but that's not the point. The solution to this would be that the, the, the superscription Psalm of David was not written by David and that it was added later. And that cannot be uh, ruled out of hand. But that's reading the Bible like a hard-nosed rationalist rather than somebody who sees the theological richness, which is just pouring out of here. Um, and Jesus so understood this, this Jesus who said that not a jot or tittle should be removed. And it's one of my regrets that our Anglican prayer book does not include uh, these titles because I think we're missing a great deal. These titles provide us a clue uh, to how to read Jesus in the Psalms, but that's another point. Okay, so I think we've probably heard of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. I want now to come to Psalm 22. We read the first half of Psalm 22 in Palm Sunday, and this morning, or this afternoon, uh, it, um, I guess it was Easter morning. Maybe that's why I'm preoccupied with this morning, but I don't, I don't think so. I think I'm just more absent-minded than that. I've got the wrong time of day. Big deal. Uh, Psalm 22. We're going to look at Psalm 22 in detail. But I want you to notice what's on the back part of page two, because Psalm 22 
belongs in a sequence of psalms that are arranged like an A-frame house, or what is sometimes called a chiasm. Psalm 22 is a part of a to the middle and out again the same way sequence that consists of Psalms 15 to 24. So over on the left-hand side, you'll see that the Psalms are numbered. And the Psalm that's in the middle is Psalm 19, which extols the law of the Lord and which extols God's natural law. And 15 and 24 are pairs, and they start us at the outside. And these are liturgies for entering the house of the Lord. Then part B are Psalms 16 and 23. Remember that 16 is the one that was quoted in Acts chapter 2. These are Davidic Psalms of comfort and assurance. Davidic Psalms of comfort and assurance. Well, that you certainly know in the case of Psalm 23, the most comforting Psalm of all, perhaps. And we just read in Psalm 16, where there was comforting assurance that included that David would not die, that uh, his corpse would not remain. And we've just said that this is, can be understood as a, as a prophecy-like statement about someone other than David, because Peter was right. David's bones um, are still lying somewhere in ancient Israel. Then come section C, which is Psalm 22 and Psalm 17. And each of these psalms are a lament. It's a Davidic psalm amidst potential harm, which ends in rejuvenation. Psalm 17:15 says, When I awake, I will behold his likeness. When I arise, I will see him in his beauty. I don't have the words exactly, I'm just recalling from the top of my head, something like that. So Psalm 17 is a, a hurting psalm uh, that ends in rejuvenation. Psalm 22, we're familiar with. It's a Davidic psalm written amidst dire suffering, which ends in rejuvenation. The psalm that we read this afternoon, you might not even have recognized as Psalm 22, because the second half is all good news. Uh, God has answered David's prayer, and uh, David uh, is once again secure, and at another level, he's also prophesying about the destiny and the prosperity of Jesus. So we can see already that um, in this sequence of Psalms, there are intimations of, um, of death and of rejuvenation. And Psalm 18, I invite you to read it um, after church. It's a royal Davidic psalm of victory um, in which God intervenes in the most dramatic way. I mean, he comes down from the clouds, there's thunder and there's lightning. This is a, a, a magnificent theophany. God arrives on the scene and changes the paradigm, as it were. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful picture of God's cosmic intervention that we're celebrating on this Easter day. Let's go to Psalm 22. You'll be glad to know that um, I have the good sense not to try to expound all of Psalm 22. I have put Psalm 22a in footnotes, but I want us to notice the title. Again, it's a Hebrew, the title says, for the choir director, to that I believe that in the providence of God, when it was translated into the Greek, the Greek translators understood the Hebrew to say the 
Um, I'm flirting with walking out on thin ice, but I'm interested to notice. It's a psalm regarding David. In other Greek title reinforces the prophetic element um, that, that is, is contained in this, in this psalm. So in Psalm 22a, which we uh, read for um, uh, Palm Sunday, we had the words of, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? These are words of Jesus on the cross. And the point where our psalm comes in, the section of our psalm comes in today, I also have in bold. It comes in verse 21. David is, is getting more and more desperate and he says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You'd expect uh, That's Hebrew parallelism. One line is like the other. Instead, he says, from the horns of wild oxen, you have answered me. And from that point, you have answered me. Everything changes. All of a sudden, David is back on his feet. His problems are over and he's now proclaiming the glad tidings of his rejuvenation and so david is uh revived uh the messiah my friends is risen as it were and now comes that part that sounds very much like what we read in luke chapter 24 when good news is to be proclaimed to the nations of repentance and forgiveness of sins and so on David says, I will proclaim your fame to my brethren. I will praise you among the assembled. Then David summons God's people to praise him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Every seed of Jacob, glorify him. Members of Christ the King, laud him. Every seed of Israel, revere him. Now I want you to notice on page, uh, the third page, what happens in verse 24. And look at the words that are underlined. Here's another case of a whodunit by looking at the pronouns. David continues in verse 24, for he, which I have capitalized because the he here is God, for he did not despise, did not scorn the affliction of the afflicted. He, that is God, did not hide his face from me, says David. Well, you caught it, right? If David were referring to himself, you would naturally expect him to say, he did not hide his face from me. But here David says, he did not hide his face from him. Now again, he could be speaking of himself in the third person, that's technically right. But the, the passage wants to be read again as David testifying to an intermediary figure. When he cried out to him, he heard. David is talking about another person who cried out to him and God hearing him. This, I suggest, is where David can be understood to allude to Jesus, the afflicted one in Psalm 22, whose prayers were answered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boom, verse 21, you answered me. And then David goes on and he says, because of you, I offer praise in the great congregation. I pay my vows because of his worshipers. Um, the his, again, uh, could be understood to be a reference to those who one day will uh, be worshiping Jesus as the women did at the cross. He continues, may the humble eat and be satisfied. Praise the Lord, all who seek him. Long live the heart of you all. 
Now, I, need, I, I want to tell you that this is something that is not shared by um, um, many other than, other than me. It's part of my own research as an Old Testament scholar, but I see nothing here that's different than what we see in Psalm 110, and the pronouns I suggest invite this. So um, I can lead us to the water, I can bring the horse's mouth to the, to, the, to, the, to the drink, as it were, but I can't say to you definitively that this is um, um, definitely an allusion to Jesus, but I, I, I read it that way and I invite you to consider it that way. Um, in any case, the dramatic turn of events at the end of Psalm 22, I think, bears testimony uh, to the resurrection and exaltation of our Lord Jesus. It's a global message. Notice verse 27. Earth's entirety shall remember and return to the Lord. Earth's family shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, the ruler of the nations. Um, there's a reference to everyone worshiping under the deep witness. Everyone worshiping includes those who are prosperous and well off, those who are on death's door, and even the person who's afraid of death and who's striving to remain alive, he shall kneel before him. You cannot help but think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, when you read Psalm 22. You know, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of a servant, he did not uh, count, um, um, he did not strive to be equal with God, but God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him that name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, whether on heaven or earth or under the earth, every name shall uh, confess that Jesus is Lord. Here we get the same three levels, the, 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 the prosperous, um, the, 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 those in palliative care, and the person who's defying death by trying to stay alive. And then there's this testimony that generations of generations, and it's still going on, isn't it, friends? Um, your grandparents told you about Jesus, or maybe it was your parents or your friends, and uh, it lies to us to do the same to uh, continue the message of the resurrected Jesus. For he has acted. This also applies to us personally. Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Jesus, but it's also a prayer that you can take on your own lips. And for any of you who are going through a time in your life right now when you're saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've lost my job during COVID. I'm struggling with mental illness in ways that I never understood. I don't know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. Uh, I don't, I, I just have no peace in my mind. The why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus proclaimed, you have answered me. And God has answered our prayers in the answer that he gave to Jesus' prayer because Jesus was dying for our sins and looking after our ultimate condition. But I want you to know that in the same way that Jesus faced despair and God answered his prayer, by the time you're all over and done with and in the bosom of the Father, you too will be able to testify, you didn't forsake me, at least for long, you answered me. Why? And now comes the last word of Psalm 22, for he has acted. There's no object to that verb. He has acted. God has intervened. Our sins are no more. Our fear of death is no more. We've been granted eternal life. We have been given peace by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
One more, one more uh, psalm, and then we'll close. Because I think it's important at this Easter weekend to remember another psalm that is quoted in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. And it's Psalm 68, 18. And it's the one that goes, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Um, this is a reference to Jesus uh, going among the realm of the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he took with him those who were in the grave, who were people of faith, and he was on his way to bring them to heaven as kind of a triumphal victory parade. And so when we think of Easter, don't think of just sort of this, this, this kind of freak thing that somebody performed a miracle and was raised from the dead. No, um, God has robbed the grave of the faithful, and Jesus is leading a procession of people to heaven so that those thereafter from the time of Jesus on who die will go to heaven. Michael Byrd, a well-known Anglican theologian, writes this. The chief idea is that when Jesus rose and ascended to heaven, he took with him departed saints, bringing them out of the bondage of death. And ever since then, believers who die go directly to heaven to be with Christ and to join the church triumphant. So that a dead believer goes to heaven is true after Christ's resurrection and ascension. But prior to the time of Jesus descending to the dead, um, they were in a place that was variously referred to as Hades or Sheol. The zone of the righteous, people like Abraham and others, were in a, in a, in a part of, of the grave area, in a part of Sheol called the bosom of, of Abraham. Um, and this is talked about in the parable in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, 31. And between the bosom of Abraham and the realm of the dead, and the realm of the wicked in uh, the realm of the dead, there is a, a, a vast barrier, and that is called hell or Gehenna. So Jesus didn't descend into hell, he descended to the dead. And when he descended into the dead, he uh, led a triumphal procession which brought them back from the grave. You know, I thought I was going to preach about the resurrection this day, and I have. But as I thought about it, the more accurate term is actually the exaltation. Um, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and we know that before long he's going to ascend into heaven. And it's all part of a journey that begins in the realm of the dead. And he's back on earth to tell us that he's alive. And when he ascended, he led a host of, uh, of those uh, faithful from previous generations who went on into heaven to be with him. My friends, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And that's how the Old Testament uh, passages point to him. And apologies this Easter uh, to some of you who were perhaps hoping to hear some of those triumphal New Testament passages about Easter. But today you've heard some from the Old and the New will be back next year. Amen.